0: Shabbat Shalom. shalom. Good to see everyone. Welcome to our service this evening. I'm Monty Judah with Lionel Ministries, and we're glad that you've joined us for this Arab Shabbat service here at Benay Shalom. Thank you for inviting us into your home or wherever you're at, and we hope that our service is a blessing to all of you. A couple of quick announcements before we get underway. Um, I want to remind the local fellows uh, and all of you that Daylight Savings Time is coming in. This Sunday, and so for those of you who are coming to the men's prayer breakfast this Sunday here at the offices, uh, remember your clock is going to spring forward an hour. And uh, so if that does, and you decide to come at regular time, you'll be coming here for the cleanup of the men's prayer breakfast as opposed to having the prayer breakfast. And um, so look forward to seeing the fellowship of the men coming to pray. Uh, I want to also remind all of you of major events coming up of this year. Uh, after we get through Passover, Lionel Ministries is hosting a Shavuot, a Feast of Weeks conference. It will be in June, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and several of you have already registered for that. We're looking forward to having many brethren come and join us for that for the uh, uh, Day of Proclamation for the Feast of Weeks uh and also later on this year we're already starting the planning and registration for the feast of tabernacles our theme this year is zealous over zion and if you'd like to be a part of that please come and register if you have an rv you're going to need to register early so that you can get some of the best spots we do a first come first served kind of uh, thing uh, because we do expect to have a large uh, group of you coming to be a part of that and just encourage you for those things. Now, Passover season is coming up, and of course, in keeping the feast of the Lord through the year, you got to get started right, so you need to be preparing uh, for Passover. And in fact, in these Shabbats leading up while we're doing Purim, it, it leads to Passover, so you ought to be thinking about your Passover preparation, where you're going to be having Passover, uh, whether you're hosting and or you are attending someone's Passover. Uh, and make sure that you get started, you know, at the head of months, getting the first feast going so that you can follow all the feasts of the Lord throughout the year. And it tells an incredible story uh, and picture for us, for us to teach our children, all about God's great plan for all of us. Amen. Amen. All right, so I th- those are our announcements, uh, and I'm ready for Sabbath. Amen. So uh,
1: join us now in kiddish and the rest of our service.
2: Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath.
3: Baruch Hata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kiddesha nu Betzivanu Votov, Lehad Mechner, Shel Shabbat Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments, and has commanded us to be a light to the nations, and has given us the issue of the Messiah, the light of the world.
2: Amen. You
1: bless the wine. <laughs>
4: Amen.
1: Blessed art thou, Lord our God,
4: King of the universe, who, who creates the fruit of the of vine.
1: vine. Amen. One beautiful bread. <laughs> Hamotzi. Hamotzi lech haaretz We give thanks to God for bread.
5: Our voices rise in
1: song together, as our joyful prayer
4: is said. Baruch at Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi min haaretz. Amen.
5: Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings, brings forth, bread forth bread from out of the earth.
1: Amen.
2: Let's bless our wives Lord thank you so much For blessing me with my wife I pray that you bless her hands As she prepares our home And takes care of it Throughout the week Thank you for blessing her hands As she takes care of our child And thank you for blessing me With everything I can do To bless my wife So that she continues to bless me Thank you Father Amen Amen Now we do the blessings Over the sons Yeah that's you
1: (laughs)
5: Avinu Shalom, Shalom, Avinu Shalom, Shalom, Avinu Shalom, 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 Shalom,
1: Shalom, 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 Shalom,
5: We're so so
2: Bless the Lord, who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord, who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Micha
4: mocha, bae limadohunai. Micha mocha, nedaharbachohudesh. Nohora techi lot. Say, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are... Blossom awesome in praise, do who in wonders, O lord, who is like you, O
2: lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the messiah. Baruch atah Aronai, alhenu melech ha'alam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yashua b'mashiach yeshua. All together, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Altogether, The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth... And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema
4: Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Shem Kivod Le'olam Yeshua
2: HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel! The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Vaya Hafta. Veahafta et Adonayo Hecha, Pakolevavka, Ufkonashika, Uvakol Meodecha, The Heyu, Hadavrim Hale Asharm Hime Zavka, Hayom Alevavka, Vashinantam La v'tepardabam Vatapadabam Peshitaka, Bayetaka, Uvlaktaka, Vederechushakpika, Ufkumika, Ukesha Tam La Ota yedecha, Veheyu, La Totov Binanecha, Uchetatama Mazuzo, Pateka, Uvisharecha, All Together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. (laughs)
1: Oh Father we declare that you are great
3: And there is no one like you in all of the earth, Yahweh. Be thou glorified, King of glory. Father, you are great. And there is no one like you. For great is your name. i And Jacob. I will do it again. Come invade the center of our lives. Come invade.
2: Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28, and then back up two verses uh, there into Exodus chapter 27, where our Torah portion will where we'll begin for this week. And as you are opening the scripture, uh, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melakholam
4: asher bachanu mikol ha'meim v'natan lanu et Torah to
2: baruch atah Adonai noten ha'Torah amen blessed are you O Lord our God king of the universe who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah blessed are you O Lord giver of the Torah amen Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Tetzaveh, which uh, comes from the first phrase of Exodus chapter 27 at verse 20, where it says, you shall command or you shall charge the children of Israel. Our Torah portion uh, will extend uh, through chapter uh, 30 and end uh, at chapter 30 at verse uh, 10. And um, let me just give a brief overview of what is in our Torah portion for this week. Um, we will have the command for the children of Israel to bring uh, freshly beaten olive oil, basically extra virgin olive oil, to be used as the fuel for the lampstand of the menorah. And then our Torah portion will go over in detail... The garments of the high priest and of the priesthood. And so we'll have the instruction for the ephod, the breastplate, the stones that go into the breastplate. And the other priestly garments, uh, the crown that would go on Aaron's head. We also have uh, the consecration of Aaron and his sons as uh, priests and also the instruction for the daily offerings on the altar. And finally, at the end of our Torah portion this week, we will talk about the creation of the golden altar of incense. The last piece of furniture uh, that would go into the sanctuary, the golden piece of furniture that would be uh, in the midst of the mercy seat, the table of showbread and the menorah. So going back to the beginning of our portion here, we have the instruction for the children of Israel to bring olive oil for as fuel for the menorah. Natural question is, why wasn't this commandment given after the menorah was built? After since we create the menorah and then why wouldn't the fuel then be instructed immediately after what, how, how do we create this furniture? Then how do we use it? Well, I believe that, um, what has to take place here is that after the tabernacle was built, the outer structure, the sanctuary, some of the main pieces of furniture inside, it's then the entire story shifts to then, then we start moving toward the process in which God will enter into that sanctuary. And specifically, this Torah portion talks a great deal about the high priest. And for those of us who are messianic, this portion, I dare say, has some of the greatest symbolism of what Yeshua's role as high priest in the tabernacle and in the sanctuary, some of the greatest emphasis is found in this Torah portion. And it begins with this commandment about olives and olive oil. A little bit of uh, instruction here about what the quality and grade of olive oil that was required in the tabernacle. There are three levels in which olive oil can be pressed and you get different qualities of oil. The first press, the first cold press, sometimes done by hand, is the highest quality, the highest grade of olive oil. If you're ever shopping for olive oil in your grocery store, you will see uh, extra virgin olive oil or to say first cold press or something like that. That is the highest grade of oil, and that is the only oil that was acceptable In the worship of the tabernacle, it was the only oil that was acceptable as fuel for the menorah. It was also acceptable as the anointing oil that was used in the process uh, of the sanctuary. There's other levels in which oil uh, can be pressed. The second press, what you come out with is you still have a high quality, um, not the highest grade, um, but then that is what is optimally used for few, um, food, uh, also can be used for fuel as well. And then the third press of olives, um, pretty much what you have to do at that point in time to get anything else out of the olives, you have to press it and mash it and, and, and get down into the pulp of it. And what you end up with is something that has a lot of sediment in it. But the best thing to use that olive oil for is to make soap. So we have these three levels in which olives can be pressed. And there's a great pattern and a picture in the process of making olive oil that relates to not only the life of Moses, the life of Israel, but as the Messiah himself. I said that first press, that first grade, is what was only thing acceptable for anointing, for the, the highest worship of the Lord in the menorah and also in the anointing oil. And then the second one was used primarily for food, and the third one is used for soap or for, for cleaning. You can start to maybe see a pattern here that we have um, the Messiah who has a, has a great number of roles that he plays. He is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. He, is, um, he also is the light of the world, just as the oil was used in the menorah. He also nourishes us. He's our daily bread and and, and, um, teaches us daily and nourishes us in the same way that food is. He is also the one who makes us clean, who washes away the sins. Though our sins may be as scarlet, he makes them white as snow. He washes us clean. So all of these things in the process and the use of olive oil, there's there's a parallel to what Yeshua and the Messiah does for us. The rabbis understand this. The rabbis teach that why this instruction here about the olive oil is present in our scripture is that um, they relate it to the life of Moses. They relate it to that Moses went through so many trials and tribulations in the course of his life. His life was threatened even as a baby. He um, had to flee Egypt um, because he had murdered an Egyptian. And then even his own uh, people, uh, Hebrews, sold him out and, and he had to flee and then he had all the struggles of having to return back to Egypt and to face off against Pharaoh and the plagues and the children of Israel um, uh, warred with him even in that process when their burdens became more. And that then throughout the entire rest of the Exodus, the children of Israel grumbled to Moses all the time. And so... The, uh, Judaism looks at Moses as a Messiah figure. And they understand that through his life, that he had to be, uh, he went through trials, tribulations, struggles, pressures, all those different things that be, but because of that, the benefit that Moses provided to the children of Israel came out. That through being beaten and bruised and broken and having all those struggles that truly the blessing then comes out in the same way that you don't get the olive oil unless the olives are beaten and pressed. They say the same thing about Israel, that Israel has gone through years of persecution, but because of that, the benefit of what Israel is as God's chosen people, that that benefit comes out because of that persecution. They understand this process and they relate it to the process of making olive oil. But we who are messianic, we understand and we see that same pattern and picture in the life of Messiah Yeshua. Amen. So the rest of our portion here really focuses in on the high priest. What he, what he wore, the garments that were acceptable for him to wear and that he uh, had upon him through the process of doing everything, um, the services of the tabernacle. And we who are messianic already know that Yeshua, is one of his roles is as the, our high priest. Here in Exodus 28, it says that uh, God speaking to Moses saying you need to make these garments for your brother Aaron. And it says specifically that they are for glory And for beauty. There are also uh, some translations might say majesty. That what we're going to create here is a garment that is fit for a king. Not only a priest who does services to the Lord. But also a king who is elevated uh, up above all others. Because of the glory and the beauty of the garments that were going to be created. One interesting note uh, about this that we have coming up this weekend uh, Purim. And there actually is an interesting connection between the garments of the high priest and the story of Esther and the story of Purim. Um, the rabbis say that after the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, we always have the, the vision of them taking all the different um, materials of the tabernacle after that destruction, the gold and silver and looting the, the temple that what happened to the garments of the high priest? Well, the rabbis say that the garments of the high priest actually came into the possession of the king of Persia named Ahasuerus, the king that is in the story of the book of Esther. And they write that he had these garments and that he wore them, which would have been a a form of sacrilege because these were intended for the high priest. But he had taken them because of their beauty, because of their majesty, because of the greatness of those garments. The way he obtained them was from his ex-wife Vashti, who was actually a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So there's a connection there about the garments of the high priest that the rabbis say to the story of Purim, which we have coming up this weekend. So there's an interesting uh, parallel there. What we have here is we're going to create this uh, set of garments for Aaron. And there's going to be several different pieces to the garments and, and, and different things. And it goes into a great deal of the description. There's going to be what's called an ephod, which is actually like a belt or apron-like uh, piece of clothing that would actually wrap around his waist and go down like an apron. And then there'd be pieces that would come up the back. And stop at the shoulders. At the shoulders there's going to be two stones. Two onyx stones that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Then there'd be a breastplate that would be made. And the, at ephod let me say is, was made of gold, purple, scarlet material. All woven together. So it was this very brightly colored thing. And gold was mixed in there as well. Then we're going to have a breastplate. That will be attached by gold chains to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. And then will come and connect to that belt. And so this is like the main piece, the breastplate and the ephod will all come together. There'll be a robe of blue that he'll wear under that, that at the bottom will be um, decorative pomegranates and bells that will be at the base of that there'll be a white linen tunic. There will be a turban that he will wear on his head with a blue sash on it. There'll be a crown that he'll wear as well. And so what I'm basically trying to describe here is what some of that would look like. And I've done studies before and um, I've done, taught this portion before and gone into more detail of that. And you can see some images of that. I encourage anybody who's interested in that, look up the Temple Institute website. They have a great deal. They've taken the time and effort to recreate all of the these things. They're in Jerusalem. They're waiting. To reestablish the priesthood And the temple sacrifices If we uh, if the Jewish people Ever got a chance to get a piece of the temple mount The temple institute will be uh, Very prominent in the reestablishment Of these things In the meantime they've recreated uh, Many of these articles And the garments of the high priest And you can actually see them You can see pictures of what they've done and designed um, So very interesting if you want to study this more I can't go into all the detail uh, In my time here um, But if you're interested There's certainly more that you can find out about it and you can see artist depictions of these garments All of them have very important meanings very important symbolism in all the different things And so let me describe some of those things I told you that on the shoulder pieces of the high priest there were two onyx stones one on each shoulder And on those onyx stones engraved were the names of the children of israel very interesting way that that was done. And it's believed that on one shoulder, there was the names of Reuben, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun. Um, no, I'm sorry, not Zebulun. Reuben, Levi, Issachar, Naphtali, Gad, and Joseph. And then on the other shoulder there was Simeon, Judah, Zebulun, Dan, Asher, and Benjamin. If you lay those out and you write them out in Hebrew, those names... There are exactly 25 Hebrew letters on each stone It's of equal weight It's of equal balance The way that those names were written With 25 letters on each Obviously you add those together You have the number 50 50 has its own symbolism of the jubilee of freedom And that what it does say is that Aaron Will bear the names of before the Lord The names of the children of Israel On his two shoulders as a memorial That's what it says specifically in scripture Other things of note about those letters and about those names. There's two Hebrew letters that is not found anywhere on those stones if you were to write out all of those names. Those two Hebrew letters are Het and Tet. What's interesting about those letters is that those are the primary letters of the word kata, which means sin. So that when the high priest would bear the children of Israel on his shoulders, it had to be somebody that he would have no sin to bear that on his shoulders. Another parallel, obviously, to Yeshua, the Messiah, our high priest, that he, too, was someone without sin, that to bear the weight of the names of the children of Israel on his shoulders. The breastplate It says that the names of the children of Israel There was 12 stones on the breastplate Four rows of three that had all the names of the children of Israel upon it. And it says also that the names of Israel were on that breastplate and that it was to be judgment that was over his heart. That he held them close to his heart, all of Israel, when you have the names and the breastplate that is right there in front on the high priest. And the Messiah himself and God holds Yeshua, his bride, close to his heart. Um, I've done a lot of uh, study when I've had the opportunity to do this portion before gone into I, I fancy myself kind of a amateur geologist, if you will, to try and figure out what these stones were, what they may have looked like, what tribe they corresponded with. Um, and so there's a great deal of study. Um, I will say this to you. Uh, there's a lot of different versions that describe what stones they were. Um, my version says that the stones were a sardis, a topaz, an emerald, turquoise, sapphire, diamond, adjacent, agate, amethyst, beryl, onyx, jasper. All of those things. I've done a great deal of study and compared versions and there's no consensus exactly what those stones were. You can do a great deal of study to try and figure out what they were what they may have looked like which tribe they represented there's debate on the order in which the tribes appeared uh, as if you were uh, laying them out onto the breastplate needless to say um, there's a great deal of study that can be done on that I kind of have my own opinion after doing that study um, and so just to uh, mention that if you want to do a- any further, Um, I believe that the layout of the names of the children of Israel were this, starting at the top right and reading on the first row. The first row was Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And then on the second row was Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Third row was Dan, Naphtali, and Gad. And the fourth row was Asher, Joseph, and Benjamin and that the stones that represented that corresponded with the colors of the tribes. Each tribe had a flag and had a banner. And so the, that first stone of Reuben was likely red. There was likely a ruby or a garnet, perhaps. The second stone on the top row was Simeon, likely to be green because the color uh, that was the color of the banner that Simeon flew, likely to be emerald or jade. The third stone and um, the third tribe, Levi, Flew a banner that was equal parts red, white, and black. And there is a stone called agate that I believe um, was the stone that was used. That You can look it up. You can look up agate. It's got different layers to it. And you can find stones that have red, white, and black all mixed in in the different layers of it. Very beautiful stone that I believe corresponded with the tribe of Levi. Judah, I believe, was uh, corresponded with the turquoise. Um Issachar was blue and it's believed that it was a sapphire Or po- uh, possibly if a sapphire wasn't able to be obtained That it might have been the rock known as lapis lazuli Which is also a brilliant blue Zebulun was believed to be white Which could have been a diamond or uh, quartz if you will Um, On the third row is where it gets a little bit confusing because Dan flew a banner of blue, except many translations, and the belief is that that color of stone was actually amber or was a dark orange. So there is some confusion, and this is where some of these questions kind of come in. Naphtali was purple, and so it's believed that may have been an amethyst. Um, Gad was gray, so we believe that that could have been also another form of agate, which... um, I personally believe Botswana agate, if you look that up, it's a beautiful gray, black, and white um, striped look uh, that I believe was a beautiful stone that could have been on the breastplate. Also Asher was also a light blue which I believe was aquamarine. Joseph was very dark black which we believe is an onyx stone and Benjamin was very brightly colored of all different kinds of colors and many people believe that might have been Jasper or maybe more brilliantly a piece of opal. And in fact some of the finest opal in the world comes from Ethiopia which would have been very near to Egypt so you can look up some of these stones see what they look like um, if you're curious um, Ethiopian opal very beautiful Beautiful stone, very expensive as well. Um, So I kind of have a dream that one day I could collect all these different stones. If you ever, if you like collections or collecting rocks, gemstones, this would be kind of an interesting project to try and collect these stones. Obviously, the value uh, is very high for some of these. But what we have here, again, we have the precious materials of the tabernacle and the garments of the high priest. All had some of these most precious materials that can possibly be found on earth. Um, one other thing that was interesting here is the way this breastplate pl- was constructed. It was actually a long piece that was folded in half to make square. So it created a pocket in there behind the breastplate. And in that pocket was placed what was called the Urim and the Thummim. And this is a very interesting thing, a kind of a mystery of what it was. There was these two stones that were used to make judgment. That you would ask the Lord a question and that these the Urim, um, which means light, that these stones would actually... Light up to give an answer or to know that the Lord uh, heard these things. And um, there's a story of King David going into the high priest and asking this question. And through the Urim and the Thummim, King David received an answer of what his request was. So this is something else that was done, used for judgment in different matters that was also held very close to the heart. And it says again in the scripture, it says, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. This is the role of the high priest, that he bears all of the weight of all of the understanding of what the children of Israel, um, the judgment of them, the, his heart, they're close to his heart. All of this falls upon the shoulders of the high priest. Now obviously one man cannot bear all of this judgment. One man cannot bear all of these things and the, um, things to do with the children of Israel. But we believe that Yeshua being our high priest, today we don't have a priesthood. We don't have that system. But we live in a time when Yeshua, He bears that judgment. And that's why we go before Him for matters of judgment. That He, and when it says that it's over His heart continually, You'll see many times in this, um, in the instructions to do with the tabernacle, that these are to be perpetual statutes. These are continual ordinances, ordinances that are to be executed and followed through. When we get to the point talking about the morning and the evening lamb, the offerings, that they were to be continual. And so what we have here is we have a commandment and we have a blessing that is eternal. That goes beyond whether this uh, high priest is, whether we have a priesthood established or not. That all of these things, and we believe that they are still applicable today in matters of judgment. Amen. The rest of our priestly garments are also given here. It's talked about this robe of blue that the, the high priest would wear under the breastplate and under the ephod. This is a very interesting one where at the bottom I said that it had decorative pomegranates and bells. Whenever he walked, it would make noise. You could hear the high priest approaching from a distance because of the garments that he wore. It specifically says here at verse 35... That it said, and it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers and the sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out that he may not die, it's almost as if these bells were on the high priest to know to almost to give a uh, warning that he's approaching and the Lord hears him approaching because the Lord doesn't want to be approached in an unworthy manner. And it says that these bells were here because he would do many of the services there close to the holy place, close to the holy of holies, where he, it, was not a, it was forbidden for anyone to go in. And so for the Lord and for his judgment to strike down dead anyone who approached him in an unworthy manner, this was put on the high priest so that he would be known that, hey, this is the high priest who's approaching, not just any common man. What's very interesting about this is if you go into the instructions for Yom Kippur, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and would perform a service there at the mercy seat, he was not to wear this blue robe during that service. That is why there was a great deal of fear and trepidation on the part of the high priest that when going into the Holy of Holies to do the service of Yom Kippur, he wasn't allowed to wear the thing that kept him safe. It said that God would not strike him dead if he hears this noise. But when they do one of the most important services of the high priest. Going into the Holy of Holies. He didn't get to wear the bells. He had to go in and approach in a very careful manner. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. A little a new wrinkled if you will. Of what that service of Yom Kippur really was about. And why there was a great deal of fear surrounding it. The crown that was on the high priest was called holiness to the Lord, Kodesh, yod heh -Heh. And so there was, um, it was very prominent on the high priest that he was consecrated wholly to the Lord. That this, the role of high priest carried with it great esteem. You also had a tunic uh, made of linen. You had the turban that was made of linen as well. Um, something I always thought was funny, there's an interesting, there's another piece of uh, clothing that was created that they were to make linen trousers or linen breeches, basically underwear also, that they were to be, so that it would cover their nakedness and so that it would be, um, so they wouldn't incur uh, any iniquity or any sin. That they were to be covered. They are to be modest. Um, very important thing. It says that it was to reach from their waist to their thighs. So I've always found it funny to always mention, uh, that we have here the biblical statute and the biblical principle to choose boxers instead of briefs. So there's an answer to that age old question, uh, here given in our scripture. I always thought that was funny to throw that in there. Um, the rest of our portion here for verse, uh, chapter 29 goes into the consecration of Aaron and his sons to be priests. And this was a long process. There's a great amount of detail here, um, the process in which Aaron was consecrated. And this is going to tie into our Haftor portion for this week. Also, the establishment of the daily offerings to where the Tamid offerings, the lamb in the morning, the lamb in the evening, was to be done continually on the altar. And this is the first time here that we have that instruction. Again, question, why is this offering... um, Mentioned here, instead of being immediately after the construction of the bronze altar. Again, there's a process and a pattern here uh, that I'm going to mention here very shortly in my conclusion. The last thing we have is the construction of the altar of incense. The last golden piece of furniture that appeared in the sanctuary. It was a small altar, and on it only was incense, That it was to create a sweet smell in the sanctuary at all times and that that was to be done daily. And it was a perpetual um, uh, incense on that altar before the Lord that there was a sweet smell in the sanctuary at all times. Why is this given to us now as opposed to back when we were talking about the other gold pieces of furniture? Why is this given to us a, a great deal later? This is my opinion on that. Like I said before, this portion has so much to do with Yeshua and his role. The golden altar of incense, it's called that the, the incense that burned on there is called the prayers of the saints. That if you were to go before the Lord, and I mentioned this before, that if you were to stand at that golden altar of incense and to offer that incense before the Lord, that you would be in the very presence of God. That's where we stand. That's where the one who comes to do business with the Lord, that's where they stand in the midst Of all of that symbolism in the midst of the very presence of God. We are not to go into that place until there is something else established. It is not allowed for any common man to go into that sanctuary. To approach the Lord in that way. We have to have an intermediary. We have to have somebody who stands in the gap. A mediator between us and God. If you remember Yeshua said, no one goes to the Father except through me. And that same pattern and picture is in the sanctuary and in the services of the tabernacle that only through the priesthood and namely the works of the high priest that anyone was able to go in and approach. So why is the altar altar of incense not created before? We have to have the establishment of a high priest, that one who stands in the gap, who is the bridge between us and God. We have to have that established first. Before we can truly enter into that presence, that close to God. That's why. That's why I believe. This has to be established. We have to create that gap between us and God and that one who stands in the gap for us that we approach. Something else that's very interesting here. We talk about how the um, our heart is patterned like the tabernacle. And that we are to build our heart as a place of worship before the Lord. And that's to be clean and to be pure. But the thing that we always talk about, anyone who's come out of the Christian faith, what's the first thing that you're told that you have to do when you're accepting the Lord or become a believer? You have to pray and you have to accept Jesus into your heart. What you don't know and don't realize until later you go into the study, you see him as his role as the high priest. He is the high priest of that temple. He is the one who goes into that place, who worships the Lord, who stands in the gap that you go in through him. We pray in the name of Yeshua when dealing and speaking with and asking for judgment from the Lord, from God, that we, as simple as it might be like inviting the Lord into our heart, we realize how important that truly is, that he enters into our heart. And so we look at the pattern of the tabernacle and we pattern our worship in the same way. We raise our hands in worship as the fire was raised up off of the bronze altar. We pray that there be always a light in there. Well, We'll talk about next week about the brazen laver. That you're supposed to wash your hands and your feet. And you're supposed to be clean before you enter into that sanctuary. One last thing I want to bring out about our portion and about that golden altar of incense. It says specifically here, very specifically. You shall offer no strange incense on it. This is verse 9 of chapter 30. No strange incense on it also says this specifically no burnt offering or a grain offering, nor shall you put a drink offering on it as well. The reason why I believe that it says that is this to truly have that prayer be a fervent prayer. If you're doing business with the Lord at the golden altar of incense or in what you believe to be, if you're entering in in your own personal walk in your own personal prayer life, you don't get that close to God. Unless you are going through and it's a fervent prayer of fasting, unless you truly are fasting before the Lord and you've removed all other things and that you, when you go and you enter in that close to the presence of God, if you think of your prayer as worshiping there at the golden altar of incense, you have to think though that there was no food permitted anywhere near that altar. That so, what you have to do to get that level of intimacy It has to be a prayer of fasting and a deep, fervent prayer. So many things that are wonderful. And it's uh, an amazing blessing that God has given to us. A high priest, an intermediary, somebody who stands in the gap that we have a means to worship the Lord, but it's done in an appropriate way. And that high priest who does the services of the temple, he wears and he's adorned in the garments fit for a king as well. So let us always remember Yeshua as our high priest who is not only the priest, but he's also our king. And he also desires that personal, intimate relationship with us. And that is why we pray, invite him into our heart to be the high priest of our personal temple. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time together. We thank you, Lord, for your teaching, your instruction. As we continue through the instructions of the tabernacle, Lord, I pray that it would strengthen our personal walk with you. Strengthen and clean out, Lord, anything that does not belong in our hearts, Lord. And I pray that we would reestablish and rebuild our hearts to be perfect temples, vessels fit for your use. I pray that we would continually, Lord, Think upon these things. Think upon Yeshua as our high priest who does the services continually, daily. May our lives be a daily offering to you, Lord, in everything that we do. As we study all of these commandments and all of these instructions and and all of these details, Lord, I pray that we would take them to heart, Lord, and that we would, again, strengthen and build up our personal walk with the Lord, our walk with you in all things. So, Father, we love you, we bless you, we thank you for our, you, the Torah portion for this week and your instructions. We pray that we would be steadfast in the teaching of the Scripture and Torah and that you continue to walk with us daily, nourish us daily, and continue and pray that you would use us daily as perpetual servants to you. We love you, we bless you, we thank you, and it's in your Son Yeshua, our High Priest, that we pray all of these things. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen.
1: Shabbat Shalom. shalom. Um, If you have your
0: Bibles, turn to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 43. Our portion for the Haftorah this week, going with Tetzavah, begins in chapter 43 at verse 10 and extends through the rest of the chapter, chapter 43 through verse 27. Not too many verses here, and it's a pretty focused. Uh, uh, discussion for it uh, part of what this half portion is going to deal with is going to deal with the subject of the altar and the ordination of the altar that's going to be in the temple that Ezekiel's future temple now we uh, Jews believe that this vision of this new temple that's given in Ezekiel that this is the temple that will be in the millennial kingdom that this is the temple when the Messiah Prince has returned, that this is the temple where he will serve in and where we will worship the Lord in Jerusalem in the kingdom. And this uh, section of Ezekiel, several chapters here, complete it's very consistent with what we're looking at in the chapters in exodus right now exodus moses is giving us all the detail for the building of the tabernacle all the materials to be assembled the house to be constructed this week's portion specifically focused in on um, the high priest and the priestly garments um, and speaks to their ordination well this uh, particular area of ezekiel speaking about the future temple that will be in jerusalem and uh, does the same kind of thing. It gives great detail about its construction, its size, how many doors, all of the things that are associated with it. And in this particular passage, it focuses in on uh, the altar that will be in that future uh, temple, and the ordination of that altar to do it. And there's a, a very direct parallel passage. Uh, From our Torah portion that literally matches the portion that we have here And that's the reason why this portion has been selected to go with Tetsuvah In fact, if you will, let me take you back to the actual Torah portion Uh, And we're in chapter 29 of Exodus Now Ephraim covered the first part of this portion about the priestly garments But what follows As a part of this Torah portion, we come to chapter 29, and in the verses here, beginning at uh, verse 35, let me just read a couple of verses here, and you'll see the parallel. And thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you, you shall ordain them through seven days. And each day you shall offer bull as a sin offering for atonement. You shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. So suddenly the uh, ordination of the priest is being concurrent with the uh, consecration of the altar. The ordination of the altar is coincidental to the ordination of the priest's. The priests are connected to the altar. The altar is connected to the priests. And it goes on to say, verse 37, For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar, and concentrate it, that the altar shall be most holy, and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Now with that in mind that we just read from this week's Torah portion, let me now take you to our haftor portion and let me take you to a very similar passage in ezekiel 43 whereas it says um this um Uh, beginning at verse 18 he says and he said to me son of man thus says the lord god these are the statutes for the altar on the day that it is built to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it and you shall give to the levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok, by the way, we're talking about the priests now, and we're we're talking about what we're gonna do with the altar, but we're now giving instruction of what happens with the priests at the same time, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord, a young bull for a sin offering. A bull is served each day for the ordination of the priest, as well as for the altar. You shall take some of his blood, put it on the four horns and on the four corners of the ledge and on the border round about. This is on the altar itself and thus you should cleanse it, make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull for the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place of the house outside the sanctuary. And on the second day, you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar And and as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall present a young bull without blemish, a ram without blemish from the flock, You shall present them before the Lord and the priest shall throw salt on them and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you shall prepare a daily, a goat for a sin offering and also a young bull and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be prepared. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and purify it. So shall they consecrate it, and when they have completed the days, it shall be that on the eighth day and onward the priest shall offer your burnt offerings on the altar, your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord. The procedure for establishing an altar that is set up before the Lord is directly connected to the ordination of the priest that will serve that altar. In other words, it's the priest and the altar that really is coming together. Now, we talk of them individually and discreetly, but before the Lord, the priest and the altar is connected. And the ordination of the priest is coincidental with the ordination of the altar. The atonement for the priest is the same atonement for the altar. Um, We uh, have a tendency to in past religious instruction, particularly from the Christian point, is that we see Messiah, we see him as high priest, as the book of Hebrews teaches, and as you heard Ephraim eloquently share that point about who the Messiah is to us, but it has a tendency to be divorced from the altar. That, that we don't emphasize the connection of the altar to the Messiah. We think the altar is things of the Old Testament, well that's what the temple system. And we think of the Messiah, uh, we barely give him credit for high priest, but we only use it from the standpoint of, well, that that see, that's a replacement for the whole temple system. That's the way I was taught as a Christian. And that is still the teaching of Christianity today. It is filled with great air. Even the Messiah renders it as error in matthew chapter 23 he says a religious man says the gift you know the thing that would the sacrifice that would be put on the altar the gift he says is more important more more value than the altar this is what yeshua says this is what a religious man says and then he corrects that and he says know ye not that it's the altar that sanctifies the sacrifice it is the altar that actually defines what the sacrifice is and oh by the way if you do a much more detailed study of the whole altar service all the different sacrifices how were they presented how what were the duties of the priest to prepare each sacrifice how an animal would be brought in what procedure did it go through what process did it have to go through before it was ever put on the altar? And when it was put on the altar, and let's say it was a whole burnt offering, how did it come in as a small animal, and how did it become a whole burnt offering before God? And there's quite a procedure that's involved with it. and it, It's the priests who do the preparation. It's the priests to determine whether or not that, that animal sacrifice is going to be acceptable or not. And depending on what kind of sacrifice it is, a free will votive offering, a whole burnt offering, a sin offering, whatever kind of offering it is, the priests have different procedures on how they present it. And by their duties of presenting it to the altar in a particular way, determines what kind of sacrifice it is some sacrifices, and in fact, part of the instruction of this here, where it talks about the layers of the altar, let me just summarize it for you. In reading it, a lot of people don't visualize it very well, but there, there's a base, a large base that comes up, and whether you realize it or not, that first base determines what is called the blood line. Some blood of some sacrifices are presented above that line, some are poured out to the earth below that line. Passover blood is never presented on top of the altar. It is always poured out below the bloodline to the earth. However, a whole burnt offering, the blood is sprinkled up on the top at the horns of the altar. There's a different presentation how you present the sacrifice to the altar. And those different procedures is what determines what kind of sacrifice is it and how it's to be done the priest had these duties to make the presentation of sacrifice and it was based on the design of the altar above that bloodline was another layer that went up and there was a shelf this is a shelf that went all the way around the priest would walk on the shelf they didn't walk up on top of the altar they walked on the shelf around the perimeter of it and then slightly elevated above them as the horns of the altar and the surface of the altar and on a great earth altar there were three fires there was a set of coals and fire that was to ignite the pyre so when you started the altar there was a perpetual fire that was kept going kept going So that it would light the pyre. The pyre was when they would prepare, say, for example, a bull to be brought up. There would be this log cabin fashion of building in the wood. And they would build up a structure of fuel. And then they would place the elements of the sacrifice. And they would parse out the parts of the animal. But they would arrange them up on the pyre in the shape of the animal. And then they would light the pyre. They would take some of that fire from the other part, they would light it, and it would burn, and it would consume the sacrifice. And at some point, sometimes, the meat would come off of the altar, and they had special hooks and tools, where they tongs, if you will, where they could retrieve portions of the altar that had burned and, and partially consumed, and it would come off. And sometimes, those were feast meals. So it was a big, in a certain extent, it was a big, giant barbecue pit. I, every time I go to a restaurant and they always talk about a good wood-fired steak, I say, oh, well, we're going to get one of those like uh, that come off the altar. Because it was a big wood-fired uh, pyre that they would uh, consume it. And a whole burnt offering that would burn all the way down to ash. So a, a whole burnt offering was a very significant thing as opposed to most sacrifices which went up They were burned for a while and and then pulled off, and they were used for meals and for food. And the vast majority of sacrifices that were brought, that's really what happened to them. The number of sacrifices. They usually would go on the altar, they would be burned to some extent, and then they would be brought back, and, and they would be taken home, and they would be used as a feast for your home, or the priests would consume it, or whatever the case may be, depending on the sacrifice. But a whole burnt offering, all of it was consumed. Right there on the altar. The other fire that was on top of the altar was select coals that had come from the fire. It was just a pile of coals. What were those coals used for? Those were the coals that would go into the censers to burn incense. Those were the coals that would go inside of the sanctuary that were used on the golden altar to burn incense before the Lord. They would take those coals off the great pyre the great fire offer and the priest would manage the altar in its functions keeping the perpetual fire going uh, arranging and scooping ashes and or arranging the pyre for certain sacrifices to be presented and maintaining a good working set of coals to support the golden altar inside of the temple and when a priest was stationed at night to tend to the altar when the rest of the temple was closed and so forth. That was a pretty serious job for a priest to maintain and keep things going. He was to keep the coals going so that they'd be ready the next morning. He was to keep the perpetual fire going and so that they could light the fire so they could immediately have the morning uh, offering ready to go. And of course, if a priest fell asleep and the fire went out, Why the high priest would come in the morning, in the dawn, before the dawn of the day. And we referred to the expression, uh, he would come like a thief in the night. He would come before the daylight comes. And his first duty as high priest coming into the temple each day was to verify that there's a fire on the altar, and the altar has been maintained, and the priest didn't fall asleep. Now, if the priest had fallen asleep... And the fire was way down low and had to be tendered and or it had to be restarted. The high priest was the only one authorized that could do that. But what he would do is he would gather up some of the coals with his fire pen. And he would go looking for the sleeping priest. And these garments that the priest wore were not OSHA approved fire retardant garments. And he would light the bottom on and the priest would wake up with his priestly garments on fire. And thus we have the exhortation that uh, is given to us in the book of Revelation. Blessed is he who stays awake and it does not have the loss of his garments. And you and I, uh, Ephraim mentioned this, There's there's an altar in here, there's a temple in here. By the way, guess whose duty it is to make sure the fire is on the altar, ready to go for the priest when he comes in to do business with us. You and me. And the Messiah talks about that when he returns, one of the things he's going to be checking for in every believer, the part of our accountability to the Lord, is there a fire on the altar in here, ready to do business with God, ready to worship God. And he basically says, if, if there's no fire in here, there, there's nothing continuing on that altar inside this temple in here, he is authorized to light that fire, and by the way, you will not like it the way he lights that fire. You will suffer loss. It will not be pleasant for you. And your faithfulness is measured on how well do you tend the altar. Isn't that interesting? Because the average Christian says, we don't have anything more to do with sacrifices. And they literally testify. Oh, the altar is cold. And they say it proudly. My goodness, have they been misinformed. This teaching, as other teachings in the scripture about the altar, are extremely significant to our faith. Not only as New Testament believers where we believe the temple of God has been formed here, After the pattern of what we've seen in the tabernacle of Willis, as well as that which was in Jerusalem. But the prophecy says, and this is the portion we're looking at, that when the Messiah returns, there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem. By the way, here's the description of the whole place. And there will be an altar there. And sacrifices will be being presented. And the Levites will be tending the altar. That's what it says it's supposed to be in the Messianic Kingdom. And that we will come and make presentation of our gifts to the Lord. That we will worship the Lord. We will not be setting up, please forgive me, I, I can say this because I used to be a Baptist. We will not have First Baptist of whatever town you live in in the Messianic Kingdom. You want to worship the Lord, you'll go to Jerusalem and to his temple. And in fact, we really probably won't have much of synagogues or other assembly places. Everybody will know the Lord, and we will all go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And when we go, we will not go empty-handed. We will go to do business with the Lord, to worship the Lord, and to fellowship with the Lord. And by the way, the altar is his table. This is how he does business between God and a man. And you will approach him in his temple by approaching the priest and the altar. You will follow the instructions of the priest. And there your gift will be presented to the Lord on his table according to his rules. By the way, which is no different than if you have a guest come to your house and they're going to eat off your table, I can assure you that the protocol of your home table you specify exactly how everything will be set on the table, set for your guests and for yourself. And in most nice and hospitable homes, the silverware is arranged in a particular place. The napkins are put in certain put. There's a dinner plate. There may be a soup bowl. There's drink cups that are arranged for it. There might even be different dishes that's used for dessert or different things for the hors d'oeuvres, or whatever. And there is a beautiful table that is set. And by the way, if your grandmother taught you correctly, you don't come to that table and park your elbows on that table. And you know as a guest, you're going to follow graciously and without argument the protocol of that table, whoever is the host. We all know that. We've learned to do that. And by the way, the Lord says, this is my table. Calls on an altar. We do business together. You bring your gift. It will be joined with things I already have. And by the way, I have a particular way I arrange my table. I have a particular way I do my table. You come humbly before me. We'll do business together. And we'll have table fellowship. There's nothing complicated about that whatsoever. So why in the world... And how in the world did we get led so astray in our teaching about Messiah Yeshua that somehow altars and temples no longer have anything to do with our worship of God? No longer have anything to do with the Messiah himself? Where did we get that from? Well, I can tell you, real briefly, when you dismiss the teaching of Moses and the Torah, you lose all these things. And some people say, well, I have the Messiah, I don't need Moses anymore. They are so sadly mistaken. They are going to be in shock when they come into his kingdom. And I'm not saying they're not going to make it in the kingdom. God is the one and true judge, and I think it's a bunch of them are going to make it. I think God's arm is not short, and despite them being sinners and ignorant and dumb and stupid and so forth, God's mercy is wonderful. <laughs> his arm is not short to save. But as he said, anyone who teaches another so as to annul the least of these commandments, he shall be least in the kingdom. And there's a lot of people who here on the earth were high up in the social strata of the faith who are going to be least in the kingdom. And you know why? Because they don't have any table manners. They don't know how to come before the altar. They have no sense of what's going on here. Now let me, I want to go to one more thing. I want to emphasize my point here. And um, if, if you think that was a powerful point, I have an even more powerful point on this issue. And it goes directly to the sacrifice of Yeshua himself. Now when we picture or think of the sacrifice of Yeshua, we think of him being lifted up on a cross. And the common picture we have is he's, he's on the cross. And we see him giving his life, slaughtered as a lamb, and his blood is shed, shed as a result of the sacrifice for our sins and the payment for our sins. I don't disagree with any of that. I'm completely in agreement with that. That is absolutely correct. But there's something missing in the picture. The thing that is missing is the altar. If the altar and the priests are essential to determining the gift that is placed on the altar, to determine what kind of gift it is, for example, a whole bird offering or whatever, then how in the world... Did Yeshua, a man uh, who was sent by the Father, who uh, I believe was God, the Son of God, uh, how was he transformed for us into the Lamb of God, sacrifice, the sacrifice for willful, defiant sin, the sacrifice that passes us from death to life? Because God has said that any sacrifice that's come must go through the protocol involving the priest and involving the altar. So, where in the world were the priests associated with the death of Yeshua, and where was the altar as a part of that? When we look at the picture of uh, the crucifix, and we talk about being at uh, Golgotha, we're talking about something that's separate from the temple. We're talking about something outside the city. We're not talking about the things in the temple. So there seems to be a disconnect from all this protocol, all the teaching we have about altars and about the temple system and how it works and how we present gifts. And this is how God reconciles and makes atonement. This is how propitiation is made. Forgiveness is received for sin. All those kinds of things. And yet we have the Messiah off over here and it looks like he's completely separate and isolated. And by the way, that's the way Christianity teaches it. Now listen to what Yeshua said. He said, a religious man say, always emphasizes the gift. But that the altar is what sanctifies the gifts. It's the altar that's what sets that gift apart to determine what kind of thing it is. Where was the altar that sanctified the gift called the Lamb of God? Because if there was no altar, and there was no priesthood presenting him to the altar, then... He was just simply an innocent man who was falsely charged and died at the hands of governmental authorities. The same thing could be said for you bring a lamb in. If you don't have a priesthood, if you don't have an altar, if you don't have something that sanctifies that lamb to be a particular gift to the Lord, it's just a lamb that is slain and cooked. And by the way, at my house, uh, we eat lamb. And I guarantee you it's not presented to an altar. We just eat lamb. So how do we answer this question? Because I submit to you there is an answer to this question and it's part of the reason why there's such emphasis given to us in the scriptures about learning about the tabernacle, the temple, the altar system. It's because it's essential To understanding and following what the Messiah did for us. Now we believe. And I'm joined by other scholars about this. That we think Golgotha. Where it was really at. uh, The place of the skull. We think it was on the Mount of Olives. Now why in the world do we think that? Well, anyone who has ever gone to Jerusalem and been near the Temple Mount and looked over to the Mount of Olives, that one of the things that you notice very quickly about it is that it's relatively barren. And in fact, the very pallor of color is a kind of a bleached white limestone look. And it looks like if you were to go out in the wilderness or outside and you found a skull of a man that had been dried out and bleached by the Sun it's that color it's the it's the color of a skull and because of the tombs and because of the amount of limestone that is there bleached out washed out and so forth over the years there's a kind of a curving shape like the curving shape of a forehead and it's bleached out and it looks like the color of a skull Of bones. And there are the ossuaries, the boxes with the bones of people inside. And so one of the expressions is well, based on the look of the place, it looks like the place of the skull. That's a local expression, you know, for it. It's not a craggy looking set of rocks that looks like a couple of eyes and a nose and of a skull like you've seen it maybe in. Tourist photos of going to the garden tomb and you have this view of this craggy looking rock which is part of the air bus station. No, by the way, in recent years that's not worked out so good for them because some of the rocks fell down and it doesn't look like a skull anymore. Doesn't look like the hole sockets of a skull for eyes and so forth. It just looks like a craggy rock thing and And you know how people would look at clouds and they see different creatures in the shape of a cloud. Well, this is they looked at the rocks and they had a particular look. Well, just like clouds change, well, the rocks changed and so it doesn't look like that anymore. But the place over at the Mount of Olives, that smooth looking area, that bleached white look of the limestone, still looks the same as it did before. In fact, there's ancient Jewish cemeteries there, still to this day, that exist in the days of Yeshua. Furthermore, the Mount of Olives to the Jews and to the sages, you know what they refer to the Mount of Olives? The mountain of the Messiah. And the idea that the Messiah touches down his toe on the Mount of Olives is part of the thinking that this is the mountain of the Messiah. The Messiah comes to us by coming by way of that. And Yeshua used that mountain for a lot of his major teachings. I believe he was taken there to be crucified as well. And I believe he was actually crucified on that fig tree that he cursed. That all he carried was the crossbar out. And he was hooked up on that very fig tree he cursed. And by the way, Bethany is just beyond the Mount of Olives. And he was traveling from Bethany into the city right through that place when he cursed that fig tree. And by the way, that was the same place where they would take the ash. They would uh, they would set up the altar, the clean place for the ashes of the red heifer. That mountain is very significant in Jerusalem, and it's just right across the Kidron Valley from the temple. There used to be a bridge between the two. It was called the Priestly Bridge. The scapegoat would be taken out that bridge and go to the Mount of Olives first before he would be dispersed to the wilderness. There's a lot of activity that actually took place in the Mount of Olives that's directly connected with the temple in Jerusalem. And I believe that Yeshua was taken out there. Now, let me give you the most convincing evidence I have as to why I think that. In Matthew chapter 27, there's a centurion who's given the duty to actually carry out the execution of Yeshua the Messiah. He and his detachment of Romans went out there And they affixed him to the cross, and they lifted him up, and that's where he was crucified. When Yeshua died, that centurion gives us some interesting testimony. The first thing that he says is there was a great earthquake, a great darkening of the sky, and the tombs were opened. Now, that is the place... Down to the lower elevations of the Mount of Olives is where the big Jewish cemetery is. Some of the prophets are buried there. King David's son Absalom is buried there. And the ossuaries they have these stone lids sitting on boxes. And when you have an earthquake, guess what happens? These lids bounce off. And thus it is said, the tombs have been opened. So that's the place. That was a known cemetery, a great cemetery there the city of Jerusalem at the time of the Romans, at the time of Yeshua's death. But then he says this. He says that he saw the veil in the temple rent. Now there's only one place on the earth that a Gentile can stand where he would look over the walls of the city of Jerusalem, look over the front court of the court of Israel past the steps through the giant doors that go into the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and go into where he can see the veil separating the Holy of Holies and he's testifying that I saw that veil rent now it is possible for a Gentile to see that but he would have to be directly to the east of all of that stuff on the Mount of Olives slightly elevated It's very possible he saw that from that location. Now, if that be true, and here's the clincher, here's my point. If the centurion looking the direction toward the temple could see that, you know that he's looking over the top of the altar? The altar, the great earth altar sitting in the temple, he's looking over the top of the altar into the sanctuary, into where the veil is at. That means that God, our Father, who's sitting on the mercy seat, sitting from the position of the Holy of Holies, looking out past the veil, looking past the sanctuary, looking over the top of the altar, he sees his son elevated and giving his life. And that altar in Jerusalem sanctified the blood of the new covenant and his blood was poured out to the earth as is required for a Passover sacrifice. It is not required to be put on an altar. It is required to be poured out before the altar to the earth. And oh, by the way, just to add a little fun to this, the ceremonial Passover sacrifice... Not the Passover sacrifice where you'd bring your own lamb in and have it slain for you to have. I'm talking about the one for the temple, service for the whole nation. The Passover sacrifice is not handled by the common priest. It is only handled by the council of the temple. Which includes the high priest and the catholican and the gesbarim. And the council, and there's only 14 members of the council of the temple. The New Testament Gospels tell us that when Yeshua was accused, brought before them, was condemned, and was presented, it was at the hands of the council of the temple. There were no other priests involved. Whether they realized it or not, and I don't think they did, They followed the exact protocol of the altar that is required, that was established by Moses and the Aaronic priesthood for the presentation of the Lamb of God sacrifice. They followed the rules precisely. The priests and the altar were together. The Lamb of God was presented, elevated above, because all sacrifices on the altar are called elevation offerings he was elevated above the altar the line of sight from God he looks out, he sees the altar it's sanctifying the lamb of God's sacrifice there's the lamb it is slain the blood is poured out properly he was lifted up by the elders of the temple he was taken down by the council Nicodemus and Joseph of Arethea were two men of the fourteen of the council of the temple they're the only ones that handled his body when he came back. The altar had a lot more to do with this than people realize. And so when God speaks of the holiness of the altar and sanctifying and ordaining the altar and ordaining the priesthood, it's a very, very serious business. And by the way, into the future, this Hoftor portion, speaking of the altar and the temple that will be in the millennial kingdom I can assure you that when we come worship the Lord this is going to be a very special place Mm -hmm. and even though our faith is in the Messiah this will all be treated very special with him because he's connected he's part of it now mind you as Ephraim pointed out to you not only was he the sacrifice he's the high priest of this temple too you cannot separate him out from these things these are all his plans this is all the way he does it this is the way he sets t- the table this is the way he does business with a man now I don't know if you've ever had a guest at your table where you've invited someone into your house and been a guest at your table and they just misbehave terribly that they just didn't have any table manners. They just uh, slandered and abused honorable things that they used to, you know, they they tried to eat peas with a knife, you know. Or they decided to... Lick things they shouldn't lick. And you, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the th- kinds of things you can do inappropriately at a table that that brings shame on themselves and embarrasses the host and embarrasses people at the table. And it's not a pleasant experience sitting down having dinner with this person. They're crude. They're ignorant. So I wonder, how does the Lord look upon many of us and our brethren and with our disregard that we have for his holy altar his holy temple and his table he has set for us i have heard christians speak with utter disdain oh i hope they don't bring back animal sacrifice oh i don't want i don't want to have anything to do with that Okay. Well, I'll tell you what usually happens in my house is somebody doesn't want to follow the protocol of my my table, my dinner table. If you don't want to behave as a guest, get your carcass out of my house. I'm not going to let you sit here and perpetually embarrass yourself and us and make me feel bad because I invited you to my table. If you don't know how to behave, well, then I'm not going to let you sit around and misbehave around me. And I, I have news for you people. I, that sense of justice that's in me, I'm here to tell you that Messiah God, Messiah King, his, his justice on this is impeccable. And it is true and right. We need to learn these instructions so that we can honor the things that are honorable. So that we can follow his protocol. his table. He's done much for us in fact he's the one that set the table for us we need to learn the table manners of the house of the Lord and learning about the altar and his temple is crucial to those rules Amen? Let's pray Father thank you Thank you for this Sabbath, thank you for your instruction about your temple, about your house, about your altar, your table. And Lord, for the wonderful things that the Messiah has done for us as our high priest and how he has set a feast table before us. And as we come up on the season of eating the feast of the Lord, I ask, Lord, that you put within our heart to do these things in a very worthy manner, as you have warned us to do. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us a new vision, a new perspective of the table you set before us offering us redemption. To bread that we eat and we're not hungry anymore. A drink that we drink and we're not thirsty anymore. Of all the things that you share with us freely. Although we are not deserving of any of them. Help us Lord to come to appreciate who you really are. Value Love you. And help encourage us Lord to strengthen us as we live out and walk out our most holy faith. We ask this in the name of Yeshua Messiah. Amen. I want to say one more quick word. I want to say thank you to all of you brethren who tune in on this broadcast and join with us. Um, You know, the numbers that we're looking at right now, there are more than about 23,000 of you in computers that log in each week. We know there's, in some cases, multiple people at each of the computers, um, some individuals at some of them, I want you to know that you are part of a great worldwide assembly that is observing and keeping Sabbath. It's not just you alone. Many brethren are joining with you to keep
1: this Sabbath this week to the Lord. Amen? Amen? All right. Thank you very much. Llevaré a Adonai.
3: Vijuneja, Isadona, Pana, Eleja, Eleja, Beasel, Leja, Shalom, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you
1: shalom.